One of our great privileges as Christians is to be considered ambassadors, that we represent the King, that we represent Jesus, we represent with His message, uh, we're to speak about Him to others. It's about His authority, His fame, His promises. It's a privilege for us, and we're called to make disciples of all nations, and we've been talking about that a little bit. The question I have before you this morning is, how do we know that we've done a good job of proclaiming the gospel? How do we know if we're on the right track? So you talk to your neighbor, you talk to your friend, you talk to your enemy, uh, you, you do everything that you can to communicate the truth about Jesus to them. Well, how do you know that you're being accurate? Well, we could say, well, you want to make sure you're being, you're being biblical. We could say, well, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, some believed and some rejected, so they should, some will believe, some will reject. There's different ways we could answer the question. But as you tell others about the good news regarding Jesus Christ, as you talk about all that he did in his life, that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law, that he voluntarily went to the cross, that he was crucified as a substitute, he made atonement for the sins of everyone who would ever believe, that he was raised from the dead victorious, that he's ascended even now as a high priest and intercedes on our behalf. Those are gospel truths. Those are are good news things regarding Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. And then you tell people, and the right response is, you must believe in Jesus. You must trust in him to be saved. How do you know that you've made it clear? How do you know that you've made it clear that salvation is of the Lord? How do you know that you've made it clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, His finished work? One way you can know that you've succeeded, one one way you can know that you're at least on the right track, that it's all of Him and not of us, is if the response is something like this. Does that mean that I can now do whatever I want to do? Right? That's one of the ways. I'm not saying it's the only way, but one way to know you're you're, you're barking up the right tree, that you've made it clear that it's all of Him and it's not a cooperation. It's all of what He has done. His work is finished as He declared from Calvary's cross. One way is if the conclusion is, so if I believe in Jesus, I can do whatever I want to do. I can just send it up. We know that that's one way because that's exactly what happens in Romans. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the sixth chapter of Romans. We talk a lot about justification around here, that God declares sinners righteous even though they're not because of the righteousness of Christ. I think we should talk a lot about that around here. It's vital. It's essential. We've been talking about it lately because we've been talking about what faith is and what faith isn't. The Apostle Paul, for five chapters, has not given any commands. He's just been telling about what Jesus has done, and it's only by grace, and it's only through faith, because of Christ and Christ alone. The implied command would be, you must trust in Him, you must believe in Him, but he's talking to Christians who have believed in Him. And I don't know of anyone who would say that the Apostle Paul botched it up. 
And then we come to that amazing question to show that he's on the right track, to show that you're on the right track when he says in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? He knows this is the, the, the question that somebody's going to ask. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It makes all the sense in the world that that would be the anticipated objection because he's made it so, so patently clear. And I want to echo Martin Luther who said, if people aren't asking you this kind of question, then you probably botched it up. Somehow you're, you're, you're squeezing works in there. You're, you're squeezing, you got to clean up your life first and make yourself acceptable and then God will accept you. And We want to be hearing this kind of response. We want to hear this kind of response because it's a biblical kind of response. We want to hear this kind of response because it has an answer. And we have the answer. And it shows that we've been clear that it's all of Christ. It's exciting to think about that. All of Him. So today we're going to talk about what happens after you're a Christian, after you've been justified. You want to use the big terminology? We've been talking about justification for five chapters if we're in Romans 1 to 5. Now we talk about, if you want a category, it's sanctification. Okay? So the word for the day, boys, sanctification, right? We talked about that at home. I want you to know what sanctification is. I want you to know how many times I say died or a derivative of that. I didn't use the word derivative. Um, And raised. Because it's all about spiritual growth as a result. That it does come. It's necessary. It's important. To be sanctified means, uh, literally means to to be made holy. Okay? something that actually happens to you. To be justified is to be declared righteous based upon the righteousness of another, the perfect obedience of another. But sanctification is, is what happens to you as a result of that, a result of being connected to Christ. And it's vital that we talk about both of these things because God should get glory for both of these things. So today, Romans 6, 1 to 14, the whole chapter is about this, but I don't want you to miss fireworks, so we won't do the whole chapter. Um, but the gist is, is in the first 14 verses, and I think you'll find it helpful. So the question itself, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the big question. The question that should come as a result of what he says in 520 and 21. It's an Important question. It's a vital question. And then we see the answer to the question. By no means. And I didn't do a very good job of reflecting the way it's worded. By no means. Maybe I need to get the the veins in my neck going or something. By no means. No. What's fascinating is is he's, he's worked up about that. I'm super glad you asked. Maybe it's, I'm super glad you asked. No. Right? God forbid! What's interesting is how that, that statement is even used in other contexts. Maybe it's translated differently in English, but th- that's a statement reserved in the Bible for things like this. I'll just give it to you rapid fire. That's reserved for questioning God's faithfulness. By no means! 
chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Questioning the righteousness of God, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Questioning the law of God, 331. Questioning the purity of the law of God, Romans 7, 7. Questioning the goodness of the law of God, Romans 7, 13. Questioning the justice of God, Romans 9, 14. Questioning the faithfulness of God again, Romans 11, 1. Questioning the purity of Jesus in Galatians 2, 17. Questioning the rationality of God, Galatians 3, 21. Those are hands-off kinds of things. You're going to question the wisdom of God? You're going to question the purity of Jesus? No, that would be crazy. Isn't it interesting? He uses the same kind of heaven-forbid terminology because this would be utterly and completely outlandish. I mean, that's like saying God isn't good to say that Christians should just live however they want to live. I like the strength of that. You go, whoa. Huh. May it never be. Perish the thought. Couldn't be more wrong-headed. Makes me want to say, how do you really feel, Paul? (sighs) Super serious. (sighs) And then he gives the basic rationale. In in verse 2, we find the basic rationale for the answer. In, In that sense, it could be a really short sermon. And all God's people said, (laughs) it's the basic rationale. How, verse 2, look there, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's impossible. Did you notice the two words? Died, live. It's impossible to be dead and alive, at least in this illustration here. That's impossible. That's like two plus two is five. That doesn't make sense. It's, it's impossible to be dead and alive. It's contradictory. And that's his basic argument. And what he's going to show is we died with Christ. And we've been raised with Christ. We're not dead anymore. But we died to sin and we lived to righteousness. Hmm. It's impossible. One place we're not going to go to today though it's important, is to talk about the real struggle that we do have. We can go to other texts that deal with the real struggle that believers have. But we're going to leave that for now. Now the detailed rationale. So he covers the basics in two verses. Awesome. Now in verses 3 to 10, we'll try to go pretty fast. He gives a detailed explanation behind his answer. May it never, ever be. But what I want you to see when we look at those verses are a couple of things that are going to stand out. What's going to stand out, if you want to put a label on it, is this is true because we're united to Christ. This is true because of our union with Christ. Okay, We've been united in His death. We've been united in His resurrection. And so we have new life because He's been raised unto life. So we should live differently and not be enslaved to sin. Okay, That's a huge emphasis in our passage. Another emphasis, hopefully you'll pick up on, is how much he says no. Verse 3, no. Verse 6, knowing. Verse 9, knowing. Verse 16, no. The idea being, Christians should know this. Maybe sometimes he even means it a little bit insulting. Or insultingly. I'm not sure which is proper. But, but with a little bit of a push. You should know this. You must know this. You should know the answer to the question, does this mean we can live however we want to live? If you understand being united to Christ, you'll be able to answer the question. This is something Christians should know. 
And I like to remind believers as well, as we're so intimidated sometimes by Romans, he's writing to people who are at least relatively new Christians. So this is like, this is blocking and tackling. It's not for the, for the academic elites. Christianity 101. You should know this. Are we excited yet? Come on, I just think this stuff is so important for us. How, do, how does faith in Christ and, and, and obedience relate? Well, you don't obey to get justified, that's for sure. You should know that. <laughs> Five chapters of it. But we should also know that there's more involved in salvation than just justification, as important as it is. Theologians like to talk about, we have all of Christ's benefits. Okay, practicality. This, this has to do with the way we treat each other. This has to do with the way we live our lives, the way we think, what we see, what we do. Verse 3. Here, comes the de- here come the details. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death? You should know that. Verse 4. We, we were buried... Therefore, with him by baptism into death, we're buried into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, notice the the uniting, the union, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's talk about baptism in a moment. Let's leave that alone for now. You should know this. Join to, connected with, if you believe in Christ. Dead, raised. I really, really like, I guess. I I find it striking, how about in verse 4, at the latter part, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Seems like that's, that's like a typo. He was raised from the dead. I don't really mean that, by the way. He was raised... From the dead, by the power of the Father. Well, that's said elsewhere in Scripture, like in Acts. But here he uses another word, and he's using it interchangeably. But it's a pretty robust, big, powerful word. By the glory of the Father. The substance of the Father. Who who the Father is. His significance is the idea. It's just another way to really get our attention. You say, this happened by the glory of the Father. Isn't it interesting that that's how Christ was raised and now he's talking about how we've been united to him and we've been raised by the glory of the Father. Significance of the Father. Wow, God did that. Why? So that we too might walk in newness of life. How about that? The work of God. God did this. The glorious, significant, all-powerful one. He did this in having us be united to Christ, raised us again so that we too might walk in newness of life. I mean, if you flip that and turn it over and say, so what if we say, nah. There's a big problem. We're not talking about Jesus was raised from the dead by some sort of, you know, weakling genie. One of many lowercase g gods. 
tries, tries, tries. No, the great and glorious, almighty, all-knowing designer, sovereign creator, redeemer, raised so that our life would be different. If there's a problem here, we should conclude that the problem isn't with God. And the problem isn't with Christ. You should know this. One person put it this way, as the glory of the Father was shown in the raising of Christ from the dead to new life, so it is with us. It's no wonder, he says, may it never be. That would be like an attack on God and His abilities. Now, as far as the baptism question is concerned, I don't really want to go there or we'll miss fireworks. Um, There's all kinds of... If it means that baptism is what makes you a Christian, well, you need to get rid of Romans 1 to 5. If water baptism makes you a Christian, then Romans 1 to 5 doesn't make sense. Okay, may it never be. (laughs) And then in-house debate with Christians, and some Christians say, but he's using water baptism, Christian baptism, because that's a a good way of, of, of picturing the whole of conversion. Because when you trust in Christ, you get baptized. That's just what you do. And it's like a shorthand way of explaining who a Christian is in the first century. Somebody's baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, they're a Christian because that's what Christians do. Could be using it that way. Or he could be using it in a dry sense. Okay? There's, there, there's water baptism, but there's other kinds of baptisms in the Bible. We won't take the time to look them up, but there's a baptism of repentance from John the Baptist. There's spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's baptism of fire, the kind you don't want. Um, <laughs> judgment. But baptism is used in different ways. It's this immersing. It's you're united with, connected with. So you can have either of the two views, the latter two views, and we, don't, we can be friends. Okay? I'm not exactly sure. I won't die on that hill. I tend to think of it as a dry baptism. So you turn your Bible upside down in Romans 6 and shake it as hard as you want and nothing comes out. There's nothing wet. Um, but it could be the second view. Regardless, his point is the same. United to Christ. United to Christ. And if you're united to Christ by faith, his benefits are your benefits. By the way, so you don't take my word for it. You can just see verse, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized, literally it's immersed. Into Christ Jesus, we're immersed into his death. Union is being emphasized. We were buried, therefore, with him by immersion into his death. Could be the idea. Again, I wouldn't die on that hill. Um, let's move on. I'm itching to talk about it, though, now that I I open up the can of worms. Never mind. I have a note from the last time I preached through Romans. Next time I preach through this, I will surely consult Boyce's Volume 2. He takes a spiritual view and has some good information. I mention that because he's Presbyterian, and oftentimes the Presbyterians don't take the dry baptism view, but James Montgomery Boyce does. So if you're a Presbyterian, I love you, but James Montgomery Boyce, the Presbyterian, agrees with me. Okay. See, I should stick to the notes I'm supposed to read and not deviate from these things. Too many times we get hung up on the details and the point is clear enough, right? 
Okay, let's move on. Verse 5. For if we have been united, ah, there we go, united, union with him in a death like his, and you might want to write in your margin, and we have. He's already told us that. For if we have, and we have, we shall, how about this, certainly be, not maybe, not possibly, not hopefully, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is certain. This is going to happen. Tractor beam certainty. Verse 6. We know that our old self, that is our old, unregenerate, unbelieving, spiritually dead self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, he's just talking about us and using a a, a self sense, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is what I call piling on. Okay? If you're the kind of person who's typically sympathetic with the person who's losing, you might not like Paul here. But given the fact that he's writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you need to like him. I mean, his argument ends up being ironclad. It's, it's super strong. This is certain. This is how it is. It's going to be this way. And what we should be doing instead of arguing is saying, awesome. This is great. Justification and sanctification come ultimately not even as a result of what we do, as a result of Christ. This is fantastic. This is otherwise extraordinary. This isn't a burden. By the way, what was a burden is when you were enslaved to sin. Now, we've been set free from that. You know, but we like our sin sometimes, right? But now, all of a sudden, we see that it's so much better. Freedom, right? See, that's a 4th of July sermon. I just said freedom. It counts. (laughs) True freedom in Christ. You say, but I love my sin. Wait a second, you've been united to Christ and you're certainly set free and and, and now you're free to do what you were made to do. What you're remade to do. New pleasures. Free to act now according to your new nature in Christ. Are we on verse 8? I've totally lost my mind. I'm speaking at a conference next week. uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. (laughs) Friday. Through Friday, and it's like, I have so many sermons in my head. If I just start talking about the second coming, just bear with me. It's all true, but um, (laughs) can't sort it out. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, and I wrote in my margin, and we have, because we just were told that we have in verse 6. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There you go. Here's why. Verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. That's right. We know that for sure. Death no longer has dominion over him. Take that out of context and we'd say, yeah, we know that that's true. But he's putting it in the context of, so your life should be different because you're united to him. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. How about this God-word life? And it's in the context of having us live a God-word life. Before we move on, 
please make sure you see that five chapters of justification, being declared a law keeper even though you're a law breaker by God himself because of the work of his son Jesus. It's all of God. And now in chapter 6 we're seeing this is all of God too. It's the work of God. He hasn't even called us to do anything yet. So when we do do things that are right as a result, and He's going to call us to do things, we're not going to say, praise God for justification, and I'm awesome in sanctification. No, it's going to be, praise God for Jesus and the work of Christ and all of His benefits, because they've all come to me only by grace. It's really interesting. Then we move on. Verse 11, here comes an exhortation, here comes a command. We've been waiting for it. So you also must consider yourselves, count yourselves, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There we have our first command. And it's so important that we put the cart not in front of the horse, not next to the horse, after the horse, but we do need a cart, okay? We do need sanctification. It's God's design. I don't think we can over-exaggerate the significance of waiting this long for a command. It's all about what Christ has done in justification and sanctification. And now we're ready for these commands. You see in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what I used to do. I don't do it so often anymore because I have shamefully too many Bibles. Uh, I feel like I'm more accountable. The more Bibles I have, the more accountable I am. I just want one. But anyway, I used to always get a Bible and then at the opening pages where you have births, deaths, marriages, death section, wrote down the date when I believed in Jesus. Birth section, the date when I believed in Jesus, and wrote Romans 6 in the margin. I'm not asking you to do that, especially if you have an iPad. Um, but I am asking you to do that at least figuratively. I died. I have been raised. Based upon that, you're to, and you're to know that. You're to think differently and then act differently. It's the Christian thing to do. Consider yourselves. Count yourself. If you want to be fancy, reckon yourself. Calculate yourself. There, there's concentration involved. He doesn't use this word, so maybe I shouldn't, but I want to say there, there, there's, there's a call for some meditation. Like serious consideration. Thinking this through. Then he brings it to a close with more commands for Christians. These aren't commands to become Christians. These are commands for Christians. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It's another imperative, another command. Don't do it. 
to make you obey its passions. Again, we're back to the new heart thing. Stop it! If you don't know what the new heart thing is, look it up on YouTube. Not now. Stop it. Never watched an episode of New Heart in my life, but that one is awesome. You know the right thing. You know the right thing to do. You know you have the power in this case. You've been united to Christ. And so, so stop. And you say, that doesn't seem very powerful. I think I need a big plan and a how-to list. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, his big plan is to tell you about how great Christ is and what Christ has done and how you're united to him. And then he just says, stop it. Think this through. Meditate on this. And then stop. Now, please don't misunderstand. That's, this isn't what we go around telling unbelievers. We're not trying to get unbelievers to clean up their life. I would rather have their lives be a mess in some ways. Not entirely, but... But there comes a point, having been united to Christ, stop sinning. See, because... Again, in the context, verse 12 can be said because we're not enslaved to it anymore. See, it used to be, you tell people to do things that they they don't have any power to do. Now there's actually power. Verse 13, do not present. Here again, it's an imperative. Present active imperative for you language folks. Do not present. Keep not presenting. How about that? Keep not presenting, verse 13, your members, that is yourself, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present. Here, there, there we have a, another rapid-fire, staccato kind of command. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And just real quickly, if you want to boil down what it means to be An instrument for righteousness. Again, righteousness is a law word. What's the most basic command in God's law? Old and New Testament. Love. According to Luke chapter 10. Love. Love God and love your neighbor. So I'm not reading into it too much to say, you want to make this real practical, and your members to God as instruments for loving God and loving neighbor. Now you're free to do that. It used to be you, it was all self, 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 sin, 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 sin. Now you're free because of Christ, free to do righteousness. And we were like, oh yeah, that's a weird concept. We don't get it. File away the word righteous for a church word that makes no sense. No. If the essence of God's righteous law is love, oh, okay, I get it. You're now free to love other people in a sacrificial way. You're now free because of Christ to, to, to love God in a way that you didn't before. Hmm. Pretty amazing. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Well, that's because in verse 9, death no longer is master over us. So sin will have no dominion over us since you are not under law, but under grace. I wrote in my margin, we're not under law for justification. We're not under law to gain union with Christ. But by the way, if the essence of the law is love, we're under the law to live the right way, to love God and love neighbor. But we're not under it for condemning. We're not condemned by it for justification anymore.
I'm saying, how do we walk away from something like this? First of all, I'm like motivated and fired up about it. But just for clarity's sake, because I'm not angry about it. <laughs> I'm just a preacher. I'm intense about it. These are intense commands. I don't think the Apostle Paul is angry either, even though it's forceful. This is great. I was enslaved. By the way, in light of Romans 6, everyone is enslaved. If we were to keep reading, you're either enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to righteousness. Everyone has a master. Right? According to Romans 6. But because of God's grace, we have a kind, gentle, wonderful master in Christ. The Lord How about leaving with the assignment of what the Apostle Paul says? Count. Reckon. You know, you, you need to play accountant. Just looking at the details, measuring things out, studying, analyzing. He's using ac- accounting terminology. But maybe we could make it more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. And use the word meditate. <laughs> Attention to these details. Attention to to the details about Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished. And that then lays the foundation to be called to behave differently as a Christian. So in so many ways, I now just want to keep preaching gospel messages to you. And then remind you now and then, remember, you're united to this great Savior. And therefore, remember, not for justification... But in light of it, and in light of the union with Christ's sanctifying power, you should be living differently. Reckoning, 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 accounting, considering, meditating. Isn't it fascinating? He doesn't really give us a very long list of how-tos. He gives us a whole lot of gospel, explains how we're united to Christ, asks us to, asks us to focus on that diligently, accounting, reckoning. And then he says, in essence, now get busy. Get busy with your righteousness. Get busy with your loving. It's good. Free now to do what you were recreated to do. But it's not divorced from the gospel. It's connected to the gospel. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to transition into that, we're going to remember what Jesus has done. This is an opportunity for reckoning. This is an opportunity for accounting, considering, remembering. I've been united with him in his death. I've been united with him in his resurrection. I'm a believer in Christ. This is wonderful. And as a result of that, I want to live a different way. Because I can and should. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to now do what you've said to do and to take this bread and this wine and to eat it together and to drink it together as an act of worship, as a way of remembering the finished, perfect, sufficient, loving, extraordinary work of Jesus. Thank you that because of what he has done, you accept us. Thank you that because of what he has done, our lives are different and that we are being being conformed into the image of Christ. 
like the Apostle John says, we look forward to that day when we see Christ and are made like Him in its fullness. No longer a process, but a finished reality. In Jesus' name, amen.